The following program does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff or management of WFMD. It's Success Happens on 930 WFMD, blending business and politics. Success Happens with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning and welcome to Success Happens, everybody. It is so great to be with you and what a gorgeous opportunity in this fall season to look at the economy. It's certainly facing us full on right now with inflation and everything we're going through. And I don't know about you all, but this thing called disposable income, it's dwindling. If you look at how much money do you have to spend every week on gas and food, let's start there. Of course, you got to start with the roof over your head and the lights on. So you have that as well. So those, those basics must be met. And when we work for a living, we think of our cost of working, our car or transportation. Maybe we use public transportation if we're lucky enough to live in an area where it has a good offering. But for the most part, we have all these costs associated with doing our work. If you're an executive, you got to buy a suit. If you're a nurse or a doctor, you have to buy garb that's appropriate for the work that you do. One of the issues that we're going to face today, we're going to take on, is the idea of union dues, union costs, and how does that affect your ability to meet your make your ends meet every month? And what do you give up when you pay them those fees? I have with me this morning Mark Mix, who is the president of National Right to Work. And it's been fascinating learning about this organization because I have worked in areas where there are unions. In government, there's unions. Social services has unions. You even have unions in in railroad. That's been an issue recently I want us to look at. But also in, in in air traffic controllers. So it's everywhere. But there's been some shifts going on because at what point does the government, in relation to a, an industry, have the right to dictate to you how you spend your money and what does that get you? And what if you don't agree with, for example, in the case of the, the teachers' unions, how they politically posture themselves? That's been a huge thing lately. Education. And how the teachers' unions act politically. How do they lobby in Annapolis or any of the state capitals? So on behalf of supposedly teachers and supposedly students and and parents. But, you know, I think there's something to really reconcile here. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to educate us about this because I think that these dues that unions uh, impose on us do not necessarily reflect our views when they go and posture themselves in the state capitol for legislation. So good morning and welcome to Success Happens, Mark. Jen, it's good to be on with you. Thanks for the opportunity. And that was uh, that was a great intro. There's a lot there. Um, maybe if we, do we get the whole day or do we just get an hour? What, <laughs> exactly. We could talk about this for hours. And I just want to give a shout out to your staff because uh, I, I was able to sit down with Chris and really get an understanding of the work that you all have been doing for decades to make a dent in this uh, this notion of national right to work. And when you look at this, the National Right to Work Act, that was very interesting learning about that and and, and uh, Senator Rand Paul and the work he's done. He, he has really been a maverick in a lot of ways. But I want to step back for a minute and let's just give people a, a background on you. So you started in this work in 1986. So you're, you've spent your life doing this work. Tell us about what it's been like and why did you choose this industry or this mission? Yeah, well, Jen, and thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about that. Obviously, uh, the right to work movement is a lot bigger than my career, but it's been interesting. I grew up in a union household. My stepfather was a 32-year member of the International Association of Machinists. He was a welder. 
uh, up in western New York. My mom worked in a school cafeteria washing dishes. She was a member of a union, uh, the Civil Service uh, Association up in New York State. My brother is a school teacher. He was uh, in the government school system, so he was uh, forced to pay dues in order to keep his job in a school district up there. He just retired this year. And when I got out of college, I went to school at James Madison University in Virginia. Um, I found my way down there from New York State, and uh, I I enjoyed politics. I enjoyed public policy, and I got an opportunity. I really didn't know much about right to work, um, but I had a friend in college who started working for a, a congressional race down in Virginia in 1986. We won that particular race, and I came to Washington, D.C. and started looking around, and I found this group called Right to Work, and they were looking for people. Um, from an ideological standpoint, it, it matched with my growing uh, understanding of individual freedom and liberty. And so I went to work. I, I ended up out in New Mexico and traveled to California and Iowa and Alabama and Louisiana and all, all across the country. And, and, Jen, that was probably the best experience that a young man could have because when you get out into the country and you start meeting Americans and you see the American experiment at work um, and the opportunities it provides, it really gives you a sense of, of – gratitude for who we are and what we are and and right to work is a real simple issue that's good because i'm not that smart but uh but it's real simple and it's really easy to understand and it turned out to be a passion uh basically fighting for individual freedom and individual liberty particularly and specifically in america's workplace because there's been a lot that's happened with the federal government over the years as it relates to giving a private organization i.e labor unions dramatic powers over individual workers and over our economy. And so hopefully we can get into some of that today. And it sounds like you're interested in doing that. So let's do it. Yeah, great. Now, can you please outline for people the National Right to Work Act and, and how it starts at the federal level and then the work that Rand Paul was trying to do to eliminate some of the language to allow for more freedom for workers? Yeah, Jen, this is it's just real simple. I mean, obviously, legislation gets very complicated sometimes when you talk about 3,000-page bills and 2,700-page bills. You have to read. Uh, you have to pass them before you know what's in them. Uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky has introduced a bill that is literally one page. It doesn't add a single word to federal law. It simply goes back into the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935 and upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1937, that allows union officials to compel workers to then they compel them to join a union, to formally join a union in order to work, and then to add insult to injury, pay union dues or fees to, in order to keep their jobs. So what the National Right to Work Law does, it goes back into that 1935 Wagner Act, that bill that was passed and upheld by the Supreme Court, and it doesn't add a single word to federal law. It simply repeals those provisions that authorize forced unionism. It makes union membership voluntary and the payment of dues voluntary. So it's exactly the type of legislation we need where it gives workers choices. It reduces the, the number of words in federal law, which is always a good thing. And it provides for individual freedom and liberty. It doesn't do anything to harm your ability to join a union, to participate in a union, to be involved in unions any way you, you'd seem like you'd want to. But it makes it for individual liberty and individual freedom in the workplace. And so it's real simple stuff. Uh, if you understand the history, Roosevelt tried to, uh, you know, we had an economic crisis back in, 19, in the 1930s, early 30s. Roosevelt used that crisis to dramatically expand federal power over, over America. And they passed this labor policy that covers every private sector employee in America. And, um, you know, the Supreme Court struck it down the first time he tried it. He came back and tried it again, and uh, he basically sent a message over to the Supreme Court saying, you know what, we would be willing to add six more justices if you don't allow this uh, my, my new deal to uh, pass and all that. And so the Supreme Court blinked. They upheld it. And so from that point forward, from 1937 till today, in all across the country, except for states that have right-to-work laws, and we can get into that as well, um, you can be compelled to pay dues or fees to a union in order to work. And Senator Rand Paul is trying to change that. And Joe Wilson in the House, we have a bill in the House and in the Senate that's called the National Right-to-Work Act that's really that simple. It gives workers the choice whether or not to be – they want to choose whether they want to be part and associate with a labor union. There is so much to talk about, and this is um... – Simple but complicated in some ways. You know, if you think about the idea that I have the right to choose how I work, when I work, 
you have the right to choose whether to hire me. Those fees, let's say when you talk about employment wages even, okay, employment wages a lot of times are driven by the union positions, right? So they're, they're seeking increased pay or they're seeking increased benefits and so forth. But I'm a free market person. So if the market's doing what it should and you, you offer a great employment opportunity for me that provides those wages that are competitive, that provides those um, commensurate with my, my talents, frankly. It has to be commensurate with my talents. My talents have to be a match for the work that you're giving me for that pay, right? I always say, you know, you want to have the right person doing the right thing for the right amount of money in the right role. You have to have, and if you're doing that as a business or as a government agency or, frankly, as teachers, then you're getting a competitive wage, and there should be no reason to force that kind of labor relations on an industry. How do you talk about that from that perspective, you know, from the economics of it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jen. I mean, I'm a free market person, too. And uh, I've learned uh, very clearly that, uh, you know, that marketplace will allow you to get ahead if you do good work and your talents match the skills that you're that you're working at. And so I, I think your point is well taken. I mean, the idea that a that a, an entry into that relationship between an employee and an employer um, can can be basically controlled by government action and then further controlled by a union official who gets in between that relationship and says, hey, you know, we're going to negotiate this wage and we're going to set a floor or we're going to artificially increase wages uh, beyond what the market might pay is, is something that, you know, that's a grander study in economics. But your point is well taken. So here's what happens. I mean, you basically get this kind of artificial or this corruption of the market system. And I, I can hear those folks out there, you know, that yell and scream about this, that employers are, you know, greedy and they're, they'll take advantage of workers. And, you know, maybe there was a time when that happened, Jen, but now employees, employers, excuse me, certainly understand that if they want to continue as a going concern in business, they have to take care of their employees. And certainly there are some employers out there that don't do that. But that's one of the beauties of the marketplace. I mean, when someone sees a weakness of an employer providing a service, whether it be not taking care of their employees or not paying much, there's something that enters the market that comes and replaces that. And, you know, while these work, these, these employers who are, uh, you know, not taking care of their workers may survive for some point in time, ultimately that, will, that, that behavior will drive them out of the market. Unless, of course, the government comes in and sets their, puts their thumb on the scale and protects it or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of noise in that, in that kind of channel, if you will, that, that disrupts that free market system from working. And, and it's pretty hard when union officials start talking about that. They talk, they talk about the abusive workplace and this and that. And, you know, it's interesting because if that's really true, then the, um, the most abusive workplace in America today – Jen, is government, because that's where the highest percentage of, of union members are. I mean, so the, the argument that somehow this abuse is the prerequisite for unionization and this monopoly power that union officials have gotten is, the, is you know, the protection against abuse in the workplace, then, then the government's the most abusive workplace in America today. It's really uh, kind of, it distorts the free market system, it distorts the economy, and it doesn't, I mean, look, if you want to join together voluntarily with workers to amplify your voice in a workplace, have at it. The law protects you to do that. But it shouldn't compel people to do that when it basically takes the best workers and reduces them down to a median, and it takes the worst workers and it protects them from what they do. And that's basically what the union monopoly power uh, articulated and written in federal law does when it comes to labor policy. You know, that's really brilliant what you just said, this idea of mediocrity, because excellence is something to aspire to in any industry or any work. Frankly, whether you're paid or you're a volunteer, you know, at an organization, a nonprofit. So, you know, bringing our best selves is is the ideal. I think that's what America is about. And when you start to compare that forced protection uh, to the free market, you, you, it's kind of like capitalism versus socialism or communism, uh, which, you know, we're we're struggling with right now, quite frankly, as a nation. So there's a reckoning, I think, that has to occur right now around what is our philosophical ideology 
it, are we going to be striving for mediocrity? Are we going to be striving for excellence? And you can see that across our educational system. We're really, compared to some, not fabulous. So, you know, how do we, you know, start to mitigate this? So you guys have some work to do. What I'd like to do is take a quick break. We'll come right back. And let's talk about the work you're doing in the various states. And I, I think a history on how you've done this is kind of interesting because you've You've, you've had a long-range plan, and when you're doing strategy work to transform something, which is some of the work that I've done, you have to think long-term. It's not just an immediate fix. Everybody, you're listening to Success Happens. I have with me today Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work. We will be right back. Success Happens is brought to you in part by Flamingo Pool Supply, Industry Lane Frederick, the best for your pool today. When was the last time you had fresh homemade ice cream? Sweeties on the Creek is making ice cream. Stop in and taste our fresh made selections, including dairy free and all natural flavors. Enjoy a fresh cup of coffee with creamy shaker sundae. Taste a new fun flavor or an old yummy favorite. Sweeties, fresh made from cow to cone. Sweeties on the Creek, just up from Market Street. We're scooping now. Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com, a service of Holtzapel Heating and Air Conditioning. Welcome back to Success Happens. This is Jen, and I have with me today Mark Mix, who is the president of the National Right to Work uh, Foundation and, and the Legal Defense Fund, which is – or Legal Defense Foundation, which I think we'll get into in a little bit, and, and what you provide there. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the work you guys have done in the states. First of all, what – how many states right now have adopted uh, – this philosophy and this this stand for the freedom to choose. Yeah, Jen, there are 27 states that have passed right to work laws, and um, we've had five in the last 10 years, which has been a very exciting course. But I, I appreciate your point about a kind of a long term vision because this job is not easy. And let me just give you some context about that. I mean, as I mentioned in the in the first segment, we talked about the federal law that imposes forced unionism across the entire country. So this is a 1937 Supreme Court case that upheld uh, Roosevelt's New Deal project to basically take over public, private sector labor relations at the federal level. From 1937, when the Supreme Court upheld it, to 1947, the union movement grew exponentially. I mean, they they basically had this this federal privilege that said, you know, if we can get in, everyone has to join us and everyone has to pay dues. And so when the 1946 elections rolled around, there was a dramatic change. There was something like over 4 million workers that had been on strike. And when you think about that in the context of of the number, you know, the kind of the workforce then and the workforce today, it's a really high percentage. And they were holding the country hostage. John L. Lewis in the coal mines was basically saying, you do what I say or we're going to shut the coal mines down and you're not going to get any energy. I mean, it was a really interesting time. And the number of strikes from 1937 to 1946 increased dramatically because of this new power. And so when the 1946 Congress was elected, they came into session in 1947, they said they decided they had to change federal law and basically, you know, put some restraints on union power. And so in 1947, they passed what is known as the Taft-Hartley Act. And this was a reform of the Wagner Act, that 1935 bill that I talked about. Um, and it said, we're going to regulate this power a little bit. And one of the things they did is they said that if a state could, by affirmative vote, uh, pass what is known as a right-to-work law or outlaw the closed shop unionism that existed under federal law, they would allow the states to do that. So from 1947 till today, states have the federal privilege, and that's how I need to frame it, because the federal government said you can do this. And so the 27 states have done that since that time. And, and Jen, the issue is really super simple. I mean, these states have said, you know what, we're not going to interfere with your ability to form a union. We're not going to uh, interfere with your ability to join a union and associate with the union if you choose to do this, 
do so. But we will not contemplate, we will not allow you to be fired from your job if you don't tender dues or fees to a union official as a condition of your working. They're really simple laws. It's been beneficial not only from an individual liberty standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But that's really where we are with the right to work laws and where we are today and where we want to go in the future. There's some good news ahead, I think. So we can talk about that, too. Okay, great. Now, Mark, I want to point to something. Your your the national right to work laws at the state level allow for people to choose whether to join or not. That's great. Here's the problem there. And we've seen it full front on us this last couple of years. The social pressures that come with not complying is, is real. So when I ran for office in 2014, I spoke with a young lady in her front yard and she said, I would support you, but because I'm a Republican, she said, if I support you, I if I put a sign in my yard, people will know I support you and I could be harmed at in the school system. In other words, they I won't get a promotion. I won't. They ding you if you go against their positions, which is primarily liberal. So, you know, although it doesn't force them to pay bills, I mean, dues, it, it still is an issue around if you don't tow their line, you could suffer the consequences. Do you all deal with that at all? Yeah, absolutely, Jen. And that's one of the, the really sad manifestations of the union monopoly power in that they control the conditions under which you work. And, you know, at our Legal Defense Foundation, where we all we do is represent employees who are in situations like that, um, we hear these stories all the time. And let me just give you some context about what, you know, what was happening there. Um, obviously, the story is what it is. But what happens is union officials get this really unique power of monopoly representation, where they are the sole voice in the workplace. And so once they're in, um, they become the exclusive bargaining agent for all employees, even those employees that never asked for the union, never wanted the union, and never voted for the union. They may have voted, no, I don't want the union to represent me. But unfortunately, under labor policy, whether it be at the state level, particularly in Maryland, or on the federal level, if the unions get a majority of those voting, they become this single sole voice in the workplace. And so if you're in the workplace, and particularly, it really, it's interesting because we find it more in the, in the school system with teachers than we do in other institutions, uh, you know, manufacturing concerns. It really is interesting the pressure that's exerted on people like this to say, you know, basically toe the line or just keep your mouth shut because they do have this enormous control over what happens in the workplace when they're negotiating terms and conditions of employment. You know, it's it's scary and it's sad. But for example, my brother, I mentioned he was a fourth grade school teacher in in the government school system in New York. I mean, he he couldn't he didn't want to join the union because the union was spending his money on issues that he disbelieved with. But he had to pay fees in order to keep his job. And he was he was actually Jenny was voted teacher of the year for a small a group of counties in western New York. And you know. Despite that, despite his excellence in the classroom, if he didn't pay the fees, he wouldn't work. He couldn't work. He would lose his job. But here's the point. I mean, when he went into the faculty room, when he went into the union meetings, well, first of all, he couldn't participate in the union meetings because he wasn't a formal member of the union. So he couldn't vote in union elections. He couldn't vote on the contract that governed his employment because he chose to, to protect his political and ideological rights as opposed to his workplace rights. That's a Hobson's choice that no one should have to make. But the way it manifests itself is like the story you told. And that's not a one-off, Jen. I can promise you that. People say, look, I can't, I can't be for you publicly because if I do, the intimidation, the coercion, and sometimes even the violence that occurs in those situations is something that we deal with all the time. And it's unfortunate, but it's a result of federal policy as it relates to private sector workers, and it's a revolt, result of state policy as it relates to public sector workers. Well, nobody should be suffering violence because they have a particular point of view. We are a free country, and that nonsense has to stop, whether it's in the workplace or it's frankly in the political arena, which we're dealing with right now being MAGA deplorables. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Success Happens on Free Talk 930 WFMD. We'll be right back. 
This is 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Now, WFMD News. Frederick police are investigating a robbery at a local 7-Eleven store. Authorities say at around 1.30 a.m. on Friday, officers were sent to the store at 204 Amber Drive, where they learned a man assaulted a store employee and got away with an undetermined amount of cash. Investigators obtained a video from the store, and you can see a picture of the suspect at our website, WFMD.com. Anyone who has information on this incident is asked to contact Frederick Police. A series of forums addressing the high cost of prescription medications are taking place across Maryland this month. They're sponsored by the Maryland Health Care for All Coalition and AARP Maryland. The president of the coalition, Vinnie DeMarco, said there will be presentations by members of the state's Prescription Drug Affordability Board and an opportunity for Marylanders to ask questions and bring up any experience they've had with the high cost of prescription drugs. So are these forums a prelude for legislation which could be introduced to the, in the General Assembly next year? It's possible. The board has the authority now, without additional legislation, to make high-cost drugs more affordable for state and local governments, which is important. They need further legislation to make high-cost drugs more affordable for everybody. One of the forums is taking place in Frederick on Wednesday, September 28th at the Senior Center on Tawny Avenue, beginning at 10.30 a.m. The Federal Aviation Administration is providing a grant to Frederick Municipal Airport. The agency is sending along $5.5 million to the local airport to extend its runway. The FAA is also doling out almost $3 million to Carroll County Regional Jack Poage Field Airport to help reconstruct a runway. The funds for both grants come from the FAA's Airport Improvement Program. I'm Kevin McManus, WFMD News. WFMB's Fox News Update, a service of the Safe Retirement Solutions team at saferetirementsolutions.com. Fox News, I'm Pam Puso. Here's the latest salvo in a politically charged fight. The Justice Department is asking the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to regain access to roughly 100 sensitive documents that were seized from former President Trump's Florida estate. The request comes after a special master, an independent third party, was formally appointed to review those documents Thursday. Fox's Sean Langell. Next week, lawyers for the DOJ and Mr. Trump will meet with the special master. No more migrants on Martha's Vineyard. They've been taken to a military base on Cape Cod. With just 50, they've lost it. And what did they do within 24 hours? These leftist hypocrites load them on buses and deported them out of there. Senate Republican Ted Cruz. Democrats claim migrants are being tricked into boarding planes and buses at the border. America's listening to Fox News. Your 930 WFMD Skyscan forecast for Frederick and the surrounding counties for this afternoon. Mostly sunny, high 83. Tonight, mostly clear, low 60. Sunny tomorrow for your Sunday and a high of 87. Mostly clear on Sunday night, low 63. Mostly sunny Monday. do have a chance of showers in the afternoon with a high about 88. Partly cloudy Monday night, low 66. Sunny Tuesday, high 86. PJ's Roofing, when it comes to your roof, they have got you covered. Visit pjsroofing.com. I'm Jim Tice. Success Happens is brought to you in part by Flamingo Pool Supply, Industry Lane Frederick, the best for your pool today. The following program does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff or management of WFMD. Free Talk, 930 WFMD. Welcome back to Success Happens. This is Jen, and I have with me today Mark Mix, who's the president of the National Right to Work foundation and committee and so i mark i really appreciate the uh clarity with which you're tackling this tough subject i wanted to just give some perspective um i used to work for the department of human services um and i worked with directors of departments of social services and i a real shout out to the social workers who and all the people at dss operations across the country and in particular here in maryland they do great work they really really do but when you look at uh and and there are unions present in that agency they operate within the agency several different unions but when you look at for example child protective services workers they do amazing work, and it's very challenging. And they have to walk in and, and deal with a situation that could be potentially violent, dangerous. They're 
they're pulling a kid out of a home that's in an unsafe environment. Um, they have to investigate. There's a lot that goes with that. But we, you know, there have been morale issues. I won't go into details about it because I'm privy to some things that I, I, I won't share specifics. But, but in some cases, there are some real morale issues because it's very hard emotional work. And, uh, and they're professionals and they do great, great work. But if you as a leader running an agency like that are doing the right thing for your workers, I don't think you need unions. You just need to know what do the people need? What kind of self-care do they need to continue the great work that they do in a very challenging environment? And so I just bring that to light because I think that as leaders, we have a responsibility to create an environment that people want to work in, regardless of of any mandates okay. that come from an organization. We're getting a little background noise there, Mark. So, um, do you, I'd like to just put that out there because I think it's important for us to remember that. Next, let's talk about the rail. Do you have any comment about that? Well, yeah, Jen. You know, it is important, and as we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about employers taking care of their employees. And that, you know, that's not just at the at the local grocery store or the local manufacturing shop. That's in government, too, particularly because of the, the, a major power that union officials have gained in the public sector. So it's important that employers take care of it. And that's elected officials. And so I get it. You know, you need someone to stand up and, and help. And I think unions can do that. The question is, does a government, is the government forced to recognize the union to negotiate on these terms and conditions? And if you're doing your job as an employer, whether it be in the public sector or the private sector, generally the need for unionization is not there. That's the point. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between an association that would represent, say, social workers. The National Association of Social Workers is a great organization. They have huge lobbying power. So, you know, an association may suffice. Do you really need the unions to step in? So I think that's maybe another distinction. Let's talk about the railroads before we delve into the different states, because recently we had a railroad uh, unionization issue that, that Biden stepped in to save the day. Uh, any thoughts about that? Yeah, Jen. Well, you know, that's the White House spin on it. You said he saved the day, but it's not over yet. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts that still need to be completed or stopped before that thing is, quote, over. So here's what happens. You have uh, seven class one railroads across the country. These are the big railroads like CSX, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, Burlington, Santa Fe, Northern Santa Fe. Um, and there's been a contract there with 12 different bargaining units um, that represent basically 120 to 135,000 workers in the railway industry. And and so just recently, they've been negotiating a contract or a renewal of a contract going back to 2020. Um, but because the contract stays in, the previous contract stays in place during that negotiation process, there was, you know, there, basically they were operating and they were continuing operating under the existing conditions. So what's happened is the union finally said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to get a contract, a new contract. So they continued the negotiations. They came to an impasse. Uh, these workers labor under the Railway Labor Act, which is another federal labor policy that was passed in 1926. And there are certain things that have to happen before you can go out on strike or the employer can lock out the workers in, a, in an impasse situation when it comes to contract negotiations. Because the railroads are an essential part of the American economy, the, basically what happens is the National Mediation Board steps in and says, okay, you're at an impasse. We're now going to have a 30-day cooling-off period. And we're going to we're going to force you to the table to negotiate. And if you can't get an agreement, then then the president can convene what he calls a presidential emergency board, a PEB. And the president appoints people that three people members to basically sit down and say, OK, here are the issues. We're going to make a recommendation to both the carriers and the unions and we're going to go forward. So they did that back in August 16th of this year. And they put out a proposal that was basically splitting down the middle what the unions wanted and what the carriers thought they could do. And they presented that to both sides. And there was a 30-day period there that would have expired at 12.01 a.m. on Friday morning. And at that point, the unions could go on strike or the employers could lock out the employers and the entire rail system across the country would shut down. So what happened was these negotiations continued to, you know, through the day on Thursday and on Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, whatever it was, they announced that all 12 
units, unions, had decided that they were agreeing to a tentative agreement. And so that basically stopped the strike from happening. But basically right now, Jen, only one of those unions has actually voted on the tentative agreement that the union officials negotiated with the carriers. And interestingly enough, that union, the rank and file workers, voted that down. So there are 11 units left. I think maybe two or three have had votes, and and I think uh, maybe two have accepted it since that Thursday. But there's still, I think, probably eight or nine units that still have to vote on whether or not they accept what the union officials negotiated. Now, if though if the workers vote against the, the the proposal, what happens then is really kind of up in the air. That we still could have a rail strike across the country. And the reason why this is because these unions have the monopoly power to control every worker in that workplace. And even if you vote yes on the agreement and you want to go back to work, the union can say, you know what, we're not, we're going to go out on strike, we're going to shut the system down. And if you cross the picket line, you're subject to penalties inside that union, um, discipline and penalties. In fact, that happens all the time for workers that want to go to work. We were representing employees in the grocery store business out in Denver, Colorado, who went to work during a strike. They got fined something like $4,000 for crossing the picket line. So there's a lot more going on here. It's another battle between kind of this monopoly power the union officials have and the battle they have against the carriers. And I'm not saying who's guilty or who's innocent or who's pure. Both sides have things going on there, but there's a lot more to go in this situation. Well, I appreciate you sending, uh, sh- shedding some light on that railway situation because I think a lot of people didn't quite understand it. So that was great to hear. And I let's let's go and talk about the um, the states issue. So you said there are twenty seven states who have adopted the uh, right to work laws in their local states. Uh, what's next? What's the future for you? Yeah, Jen, well, two courses of action. When you think about, you know, you talked about vision and kind of a long-term plan. Obviously, in this business, we have to have long-term plans because nothing happens quickly. And certainly in Maryland, we know that, and and across the country, we know that. Um, So two things, two-prong attack. One is the Rand Paul bill, the Joe Wilson bill that's in the House, the Rand Paul bill in the Senate. That's one prong. That's the federal legislative prong, because the power in Maryland to force workers to pay dues or fees in order to keep their jobs in the private sector is not a result of Maryland action. It's a result of the federal government imposing this compulsory dues, this forced dues scheme on the state of Maryland. So if you go to the Maryland statute, you find nothing in the statute that says private sector workers have to pay dues or fees in order to keep their job. That's the federal law that has imposed that on Maryland. So the the, the, the okay, before you move people. on, Mark, let me yeah. point to something for the listeners. Therefore, yeah. everyone, who we vote in in this legislative cycle, in this election cycle into the legislature in Annapolis or in Harrisburg or Richmond, you know, whatever the state may be, because we've got all you guys listening, right? Um, who we vote in matters because they won't uh, – the current – situation in Annapolis, they will not change this at the state level. They will continue to follow the Fed because that's a more liberal point of view. And we do not have a balance of power in Annapolis. We just don't. So we need to look at who will support the idea of the workers' right to choose in Maryland. And that's who you need to be thinking about voting into Annapolis. Because, by the way, if they do, if they have that notion about freedom in the right to work, they also have it in other areas, right? So we need to start addressing this at the local jurisdictional level for each of these offices. So I just want to make sure I pointed that out, Mark. No, that's a great point, Jen. You know, in this grand experiment of self-government, the idea of being informed about where those people that you're loaning your power to in this democratic republic is a very important part of how things get changed or how things improve. I mean, so no question about that. You've got to pay attention. So so that's the federal prong of our kind of vision going forward. If we could pass that, then basically what you'd have is you'd have a default to voluntary unionism under federal law. And that would that would trickle down, if you will, or it would cover the states, all the states across the country, just like they took power over private sector labor relations for all 50 states back in 1935. So that's the federal prong. 
The state prong is because of Taft-Hartley, that, that we talked about that in the 1947 Taft-Hartley law that gave the states privileges to pass right to works, we still have a state program, a very robust and aggressive state program. And we believe, um, I, I mentioned that we passed five new right to work laws in the last uh, 10 years, including Michigan and Wisconsin and Kentucky and West Virginia and Indiana. I mean, it, if it could happen in Michigan, it can happen in Maryland, but it obviously takes work, it takes effort, it takes involvement and commitment, as you spoke to, Jen. So we have that state program, and we've got a couple of states that are pretty close. Uh, we believe that New Hampshire may may decide that they're going to be a right-to-work state come 2023. Um, obviously, the elections matter. Your point is well taken. I mean, we can't do it unless you get the people in the legislature, whether it be at the state level or at the federal level, that believe in individual freedom when it comes to the American workplace. They could do it. Um, and you can do it, and Michigan did it, so we'll keep fighting for that, too. So a state program and a federal program. And then, of course, in the meantime, we use our National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation to defend workers whose rights have been violated by these compulsory force unions and schemes um, so that we can basically show the American people how this looks in reality. I mean, we just won a $5.1 million jury verdict on behalf of a flight attendant for Southwest Airlines because the union went after her and retaliated against her for standing up for her views in the workplace. So a lot going on. That's our vision. That's what we're up to right now. That's brilliant. Let's take a quick break, everybody. You're listening to Success Happens. I have with me today Mark Mix, and we are talking about unions and the power of unions to uh, supersede your personal rights. We'll be right back. Success Happens is brought to you in part by Flamingo Pool Supply, Industry Lane Frederick, the best for your pool today. When was the last time you had fresh homemade ice cream? Sweeties on the Creek is making ice cream. Stop in and taste our fresh made selections, including dairy free and all natural flavors. Enjoy a fresh cup of coffee with creamy shaker sundae. Taste a new fun flavor or an old yummy favorite. Sweeties, fresh made from cow to cone. Sweeties on the Creek, just up from Market Street. We're scooping now. It's all about your car. Call in with questions to Dave Serio, beginning in less than 30 minutes, right here on 930 WFMD. Welcome back to Success Happens. This is Jen, and I have with me today Mark Mix, and we are discussing uh, all things having to do with unions. And Mark, um, as we go along here, we have a listening audience that covers West Virginia, uh, we even have people listening from Utah. But at any rate, I want to address first your thoughts about Maryland and then let's, let's discuss Pennsylvania. Because I think there's, you know, when you're in certain areas in certain states, unions have had a lot of power. And I think some politicians may be afraid to go against unions. So what do you say about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jen. I mean, obviously, in the state of Maryland, when you look at the, the partisan makeup of, of your General Assembly, your House delegates and your Senate, one looks at that and doesn't think that probably right to work is going to get uh, uh, an unbiased fair hearing anywhere. You know, and we, the good news is we have legislators in Maryland that introduce right to work year after year. And we've gone we've had congressional or committee hearings about it, but not much success. You know, but here's the point. I mean, it, you keep working at it. You keep pushing it. And in Maryland, um, there's work to be done, uh, obviously. Uh, with the partisan makeup there in Annapolis, it's really, you know, it's hard. But then again, if I'd have told you 10 years ago that, that Michigan would be a right-to-work state, you'd say, no chance, no way, no how. But here we are. And West Virginia is a right-to-work state now, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So there's a way to do it. It's just about involvement and engagement. And, you know, the result in Michigan and West Virginia and Indiana and Wisconsin is that the unions still operate there. They're just more accountable because rank-and-file workers have a chance to hold them accountable with their pocketbooks. If they disagree with what the union's doing, whether it be politically or ideologically, or if they lose sight of what's happening on the shop floor as opposed to what's happening at the state capitol, um, the workers can hold them accountable accountable. And that's how this process works. And, you know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes involvement, but it can happen. So one thing I would say about Maryland is that the public sector workers, those workers that labor under, you know, in the government, whether it be the local government or the state government, we won a U.S. Supreme Court case back in 2018, a case called Janice v. Asked Me, where one single employee in the state of Illinois stood up and said, you know what, 
I'm opposed to being forced to pay fees to a union that doesn't represent me and is hurting the state of Illinois. He stood up. We went through that. We took him through the federal court process. The National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation did. We argued the case at the U.S. Supreme Court. And back in June of 2018, we the Supreme Court agreed that every worker should have the right to not pay, be forced to pay dues or fees. And so that worker got protections for every government employee across America. So if you're in Maryland and you're a public sector employee and you object to what the union is doing with your dues money, you can write them a letter and say, I don't want to be forced to pay any fees anymore. And under the Supreme Court decision, I have a First Amendment right to object. And if they need additional information about that, Jen, they can look at our, web, our foundation's website at nrtw.org and get information about how that works. So that's one way we can have an impact in Maryland. Wonderful. And while we're at it, I also want people to be able to donate and support your work. Uh, I know that uh, in one of the, uh, I guess the foundation, one of them, it's not tax deductible, but uh, that might be the committee work. Can you explain how people can support you financially? Yeah, the foundation, you can go to the website, nrtw.org. You can help out there if you want to, but you don't have to do that. If you want to just exercise your rights, we've got 21 staff lawyers that do nothing but help employees. We provide those services free to employees who, who will stand up and fight and will we'll protect you and help you through that process. Um, for the committee, that's right, it's not a tax-deductible contribution for the committee. It is for the foundation, and you can find information about that at nrtwc. NRTWC.org. That takes you to the committee's website where we have information about legislation. We have information about what's going on in Maryland and the state legislature there and the bills that we're tracking and following. And so they can go there and they can do the same whether you're from West Virginia or from Pennsylvania or from Virginia. You can find information either way at those websites. So how do you go about informing the public about the work that you're doing? And when you're you're working on a state like you did Michigan to make them shift and, and really give them the freedoms to choose and so forth. How do you go about that so that you're effective? I mean, obviously there's a process to inform the public. How do you, how do you do that? Well, we use whatever means we can talk shows like this, uh, the internet, uh, social media. I mean, we're trying to be on all those platforms that we think people are looking. And obviously, you know, if you go Google us, uh, we, sometimes we get a little bit behind some of the unions because they bid on the ability to appear first on the on the on the Google machine. But you can find out lots of information about it. And and obviously when we can we can publicize uh, victories on behalf of workers. And and Jen, particularly, it's important to understand that there are there are workers that have the, the most courage possible to stand up and say, you know what, stop. I don't like this. I don't I don't agree with it. And it's a violation of my rights. And when they do that. When we can partner with them to help, I think that makes a big difference. I mentioned the, the Southwest flight attendant that we just represented, um, and it went to a jury trial in, in Texas, and the jury looked at the facts of the case, and they said, you know, this is so abusive, what the unions have done to this worker and what the company did to the worker, for that matter. Southwest Airlines was culpable as well. I mean, that got national media, national press, and obviously the phone started ringing from other employees saying, you know, I felt this way for a long, long time. Um, I want to stand up and fight, too. So that's kind of how this whole process works. The more success we have, whether it be from a litigation standpoint or from a legislative standpoint, that's when kind of the interest level picks up, and it's our job to maintain that and expand it and continue to fight for individual liberty in the American workplace. So when you look at the COVID issue, and this may be the last uh, you know subject we can really cover today, but I'll have you back. This has been fantastic. You know, there, there were nurses and doctors, a lot of nurses who were opposed to taking the vax, but they were forced to do so or they lost their employment. In most of those instances, it was the the medical boards who were pressuring them, probably acting somewhat like a union, frankly, um, and exceeding their authority. I, I, I think that the medical boards are next in terms of uh, the work to do to dismantle their power. Um, I, I'll just quote uh, a Dr. Jeff Barkey, who's one of America's frontline doctors. He's out of California, and he's been on my show many times. And, and Jeff said, they do not re- represent me. You know, you know, that National yeah. Medical Association. Um, and in fact, they only represent about 20 percent of the doctors across the nation. And yet they have so much power. So in the case of covid, there was a, a actually a case here in Maryland where state workers and students uh, filed a lawsuit against the state of Maryland system, uh, University of Maryland system, because they were being forced to vax in order to work as nurses or 
participate in the educational system. In in that case, do you see a similarity? Because it seems to me like they were acting like a union in in putting that kind of pressure on these nurses. And, you know, now we know they made the right decision. Many of them left employment because they they refused and they, and they were right to do so. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, you know, a mandate. And we did get involved in that in kind of a, uh, not in a direct way when the employer or the state was mandating it, but there were certain instances where the union was saying, you know, you've got to take the vaccine. And so if the union was pushing it, we ended up helping several employees uh, across the country when the union said you got to do it. And, you know, of course, the unions used it actually to reopen negotiations and all that stuff and get more, you know, more influence and more power. But, yeah, it was a really, really sad situation because just like forced union dues or fees, they said in order to continue working here, you've got to take this shot. And so we got involved, as I mentioned, when the, when an employee came to us and said, how can we fight this? And we asked them, who's doing it? Is it the state or is it the locality or is it who, who's doing it? And if, if the union was involved in pushing it and mandating it, then we could help those employees because we, we don't we represent employees against union coercion. So it, there was a limited scope of what we did, but we helped a lot of employees that were confronted with that very, very question. And it, and it is exactly like the forced dues and fees that are, you know, you, if you, you could be the best worker and if you don't tender fees to a union, you lose your job. I mean, that doesn't make any sense and it doesn't make any sense to mandate the vaccines and, you know, ignoring, you know, certain exemptions that existed that are, you know, obviously the religious exemption, those types of things. I mean, it got really serious and lots of workers were affected by that. Well, and the medical information was suppressed. But when it's finally come out, we now know that uh, it was incredibly um, risky. I'm being generous. But pilots, back to your work, and we've only got a minute, but pilots were also affected and they are in a union so there were there was a big uh, issue around pilots in the vax any thoughts on that yeah there was and again we we talked to a lot of folks that called in and started asking questions about it but in that case you know it was the employer that was mandating it and so it was a little bit of a, of a different nuance was we have to keep you know keep on our mission and and make sure that we're we're helping where we can help and we did help in that regard but yeah there's Lots of issues around it, and that story's not over either, Jen. I'm sure of that. Right on. Well, listen, Mark, it has been great to have you with us. Once again, uh, please tell people how they can either get involved legislatively. Let's start there. What can people do? What are you asking people to do here in the Maryland, Pennsylvania area? Yeah, we're asking them to basically ask the candidates that are asking for their vote to ask them where they stand on the issue of right to work and the the issue of individual freedom in the workplace. That's first and foremost. So they can find out information about that at the committee's website, nrtwc.org. And if they're interested in what their rights are in the workplace and have questions about that, nrtw.org gets them an opportunity to speak with a lawyer about their situation, or they can find information about where they are in our frequently asked questions section. Excellent. Well, it has been great to have you on here, and there's just so much more to learn about this. But everybody, stay abreast of these issues as we're coming into the opportunity to vote. And by the way, vote on Election Day. Don't do mail-in. We'll talk to you next Saturday morning right here on WFMD.